you cruising through life not always knowing what direction you were headed? Let Live On Purpose with Dr. Paul Jenkins be your guide. Live On Purpose will give you insights into your life and show you how you can become the driver and captain of it. No more aimless wandering. By learning the principles that govern happiness and wealth, you will be able to make personal progress that you have only dreamed possible. And now, here's your host, the shrink who expands your life, Dr. Paul. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Live on Purpose Radio. This is Dr. Paul, the shrink who expands your life, bringing you another episode of Live on Purpose Radio. And I'm excited to have a guest in studio with me. I will introduce him right off the bat, and then we'll talk about our topic. This is Dr. Matthew Peterson. Welcome, Dr. Peterson. Thank you very much. Glad to have you with me today. Dr. Peterson is a specialist. He specializes in pain medicine. Now, why are we doing a Live on Purpose radio episode on pain medicine? Well, I've just to kick this thing off. I've been uh, I've been working a lot lately, as many of you know, on the question of why do I do what I do when I know what I know, and an essential component of understanding human motivation is understanding this concept of pain. Now, I talk about pain from a psychological perspective primarily, and I'm going to be chiming in a little bit from that perspective as we get into today's topic. But Dr. Peterson deals with the kind of pain that most of us traditionally identify uh, in terms of physical pain or, well... How do you differentiate even between physical pain and psychological pain? And maybe before we go too far that direction, I'm just going to turn it over to you for just a minute to tell us a little bit more about you, who you are and what you're doing, and then lead us into a definition of what pain is, and then we can go from there. Um, Well, again, uh, my name is Dr. Matthew Peterson, and I've been practicing pain medicine for the last five years. Uh, my training was initially in family practice and then ventured into anesthesia. And mm-hmm. with anesthesia, we deal a lot with subconsciousness for uh, general anesthetics in the operating room and regional anesthetics uh, for uh, surgical procedures. And with the improvement in technology, uh, anesthesia as a field of medicine has really branched off into uh, pain management as well. Mm. So largely my specialty involves a lot of uh, surgical procedures or regional anesthetic techniques that are associated with blocking of the central nervous system or the impulse transmission of pain between the receptor site that travels along the spinal cord and eventually ends up synapsing in the brain. But I think if you talk about the definition of pain, that's just one small aspect Um The International Society for the Study of Pain uses a definition of pain, uh, which is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in such terms, um, or described in terms of such damage. And, you know, I think with that definition, it's important to also look at the psychological aspect of pain. Mm -hmm. And with each individual patient... Uh, as they experience pain, they may be experiencing both an emotional experience, mm-hmm. uh, largely due to initially a, a traumatic injury, which was tissue damage, mm-hmm. which has since healed. So, you know, going back to your original question, how to differentiate between the two? Sometimes it can be very difficult. Well, in in the definition that you gave, you said it was a sensory or emotional experience. Correct. And there's a lot of things that can create that experience. So in the definition, you're talking about tissue damage. And and uh, in lay terms, that generally means some kind of an injury. Correct. Or some kind of damage to your body or to the to the systems or the tissues in your body. And, and the body's reaction to that is to create a sensory stimulus that is experienced in the brain as 
pain. Correct. There's also the the learned aspect of that, uh, which is conditioning. Again, going back to the psychological aspect of, you know, as a young child when the patient or when a, a person experiences a painful stimulus for the first time, mm-hmm. the brain may have never been exposed to that particular stimuli. Um, so the conditioning is what that person has felt at that time. Uh, the response of not only the people around them, but the response of the individual themselves. Mm-hmm. So pain can be a, a somewhat of a learned response or a cultural experience as well. Now that's that's a fascinating thing to me because I know that different people experiencing exactly the same stimulus or experience. Um, well, I'm not going to say experience, but let's just say the same stimulus or the same event or the same context will have a very different emotional or sensory experience. And some of that is based on their training. Some of that's based on their expectations. Uh, there's, would you say, would you say that people can create pain? I think that they can maintain the pain. Okay. Um, can they create pain? I think that they could create pain as well. You know, depending huh. on the thought process that they have. You know, if they convince themselves that the experience they're having is a painful experience, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to experience it as pain. It may not be tissue damage as a traumatic injury, mm-hmm. but going back to the emotional experience, if the experience they're they're thinking about or the experience they're having and associating it with a painful stimulus in the past, mm-hmm. they could potentially create a, a pain cycle, which in a sense they've created. So you've, you've made a, a, a whole career around understanding and treating pain, basically. Is that fair to say? Uh, continuing to try to understand pain. I think there is a lot that uh, we're still continuing to learn. As you haven't got it all down first. yet, huh? No, it's a learning process every day. <laughs> well, it, and you know, that's important to acknowledge because I think that a lot of people who are experiencing pain on a regular, consistent, chronic basis sometimes feel a little frustrated because they go to the medical industry looking for an answer or solution, and sometimes they don't find it to their satisfaction. Is that true? That's true. And I think some of that also is because sometimes uh, people who are involved in the industry don't even understand it that well, and some understand it better than others. I know part of your your objective is to help to educate not only the public about this and patients who are experiencing pain, but also physicians who are treating it. That's correct. And giving those tools and that knowledge that can help them to get a little bit better handle on it. Yeah, I think with, you know, going back to where are we at in pain medicine today, uh, we're certainly at a, a good crossroads as far as the therapies that are available and the treatment options that patients have, even compared to five, ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's medications or surgical procedures, um, you know, the technology is just advancing so quickly that sometimes it's hard to even stay up on top of all of the the latest mm-hmm. technology. So when you have a physician that's busy in their practice and they're trying to treat, you know, whatever their specialty or their, if they're a generalist, especially, you know, treating, you know, all of the gamut of uh, health conditions they treat, hypertension, mm-hmm. diabetes, there's just no way they're going to be able to stay up on everything that's going on in pain medicine is just one aspect of the patients mm-hmm. that they see on a daily basis. The other part of that is that hmm. pain is by far the largest reason people go to the physician. Well, that's the motivating factor, isn't it? Usually. And, and I'll have some other things to say about that, I think, in just a few minutes. But if this is such a a pervasive thing in our society and in, in human experience, pain is part of the picture. And for some people, it becomes debilitating. Uh, for more people than that, it's probably a nuisance in their life. So I want to I want to just throw something out there, and we've uh, there's a couple of other things on the agenda that I'm I'm sure we're going to get to, but I want to I want to ask you since I've got you cornered here, 
in front of <laughs> however many people are listening to this particular episode, I'm positive that there are people who are listening right now who are either experiencing some significant pain in their own life or they have someone within their direct family or realm of influence that are experiencing this pain. And sometimes people don't don't have enough knowledge to know what to do, where to go. What, what would be the first thing you'd want people to understand if, you know, knowing that you've got some people that you're in their ears right now, what do you want them to know first about this this pain that has become such a, a big part of their life? Well, I think the message I have to say to them is that there are options. I think a lot of patients feel that there are no options. So there's think, some hope. I think there are um, there are physicians out there that don't think there are options. They're doing all that they can do for the patient. And it may be that they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. If, if they don't know of some of the pain therapies or the therapies that are available, um, how would they know to send the patient that they're struggling with to a mm-hmm. specialist that manages pain? Uh, so they may have patients in their practice which you know continue to struggle, and they continue to sh- struggle to treat them. Um, so if so, if there's a message, that message is that there is there are options, there is hope for uh, pain pain management, and mm-hmm. the specialty continues to advance every day. So that's an important message of hope. Getting back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, most of the people who visit a doctor. Uh, and I, I don't want to uh, misrepresent this in what you said, but I think I heard you said that most of the people who are going to a doctor are motivated in one way or another by pain. Correct. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the reason people go to a physician, the number one reason mm-hmm. that people go to a physician for a visit, whether it's a general practitioner or you know, some other subspecialist, is usually pain management. Or not pain management, mm-hmm. but because of a symptom of pain. Because to treat something that's causing pain in their right. life. The pain is their motivating factor to make that visit or make that appointment. Mm-hmm. And the you know the end result is they either get that treat, treated and they go on with life or they continue to bounce around from different physicians mm-hmm. until many times they make it to my doorstep in my practice. Uh, most patients have seen anywhere from five to ten other physicians for before they symptoms. come to you correct hmm well that suggests that there's some some really important things that we might be able to help people understand to start getting in top on top of that I think so we'll bring that right back as we come back from this break this is Kirk Weasler to tell you about morebetterbooks.com. Morebetterbooks.com is where you can find more better books for a more better life. Not only that, let me tell you about some of the very fun and cool select titles on morebetterbooks.com. You'll want to get a copy of The Dog Poop Initiative. This best smelling book could change your life forever. It certainly changed the lives of thousands of Boeing employees as well as school teachers, parents, leaders across the United States and in Israel and in Germany. And you can get your own copy at morebetterbooks.com. Whoa, that's not all. What about The Cookie Thief? This classic tale told in a rhyming format fully illustrated with very fun hit messages. Pick up a copy now today on morebetterbooks.com. Other great titles there. Finding Your Pathway to Mastery, Beyond Illusions, Make It Great, these titles are only available on morebetterbooks.com. Go to morebetterbooks.com today and begin to have a more better life and live that life on purpose. Thank you for listening to Live on Purpose Radio. Some of you have been asking how you can get more involved with the show. And I also appreciate those of you who have offered to support the show. Now you can do both easily by purchasing a Top Spots listing. For a very small donation to the show, your link will be posted at liveonpurposeradio.com. Just go to the website and look for the Top Spots widget on the right side panel. Click at the bottom and follow the simple instructions. You will then be at the top of the list. Thanks for your support.
Okay, pain. Oh, boy. What a painful topic. (laughs) Hey, we take on some interesting stuff on this show. Pain is a powerful human motivator. And one of the things that I've been teaching a lot lately is I try to help people to actually change is to understand the the pain that they have in their life. And there's pain and pleasure, right? But of the two, pain is far more powerful in terms of, of motivating some kind of action. Correct. So you got your thumb in a vice. You're going to do a lot more to get your thumb out of the vice than you are to decide which television program you want to watch tonight. Correct. So pleasure versus pain. Pain is the more powerful motivator. Your first message to our listeners is that there are options. There's hope. There's things that you can do about it. And I believe that knowledge gives you a lot of power. And so if we could help our listeners to have a little bit more knowledge about what pain is, what causes it, where does it come from, and then uh, kind of branch out from there into, okay, what can you do about this? So as the pain expert, teach us what it is. What is this pain? Where does it come from? Well, if we go back to you know the basics of uh, pain as a perceived response, uh, you know, we, we, really our perception is at the brain level. Um, I look at pain as basically a perceived response, and that we perceive that in the brain. And if you think of it as the brain is just simply a relay station, as a group of nerves that really doesn't know the difference between pleasure and pain. Mm-hmm. But its whole mm-hmm. sole purpose is to take all of the signals that it receives and with and basically come up with some type of response. And so there are stimuli that I would call excitatory stimuli that go into the pain center of the brain and excite that center, and we would perceive that as pain. And there are other signals that are inhibitory that stimulate that center of the uh, brain, the pain center, and Mm -hmm. inhibit it and decrease the response. So if you have two equal and opposing signals, the brain really doesn't perceive any pain at all. It sort of nulls it out or it it balances it out. And So let me see if I'm understanding so far. And uh, in the brain, there's there's a particular part of the brain. You called it a pain center. Correct. So there's there's a a part of your brain that's got this special job to do. And as the signal comes in from the nervous system, it's going to interpret it and then do something with it, create some kind of a response. Correct. So the signal, um, and then you talked about two kinds of signal, excitatory and inhibitory. So if you injure yourself... Um, and I'm I, I'm trying to understand this just from kind of a uh, a non-pain specialist perspective. <laughs> uh, if you, if you injure yourself, the nerves in that injured area are creating this excitatory response. Yes. Send that signal up to the pain center in the brain. The pain center in the brain recognizes, hey, something's going on down in the foot, ankle, hand, wherever it is. And because it's this excitatory response, creates an experience of pain. Correct. Did I oversimplify that? That sound okay? No, that's pretty good. Uh, simple is better. Okay. Um, you know, I think when you look at that excitatory input, it's not only uh, tissue damage. You know, you smash your finger with a hammer but that can be an emotional experience such as um, anger Mm -hmm. or depression Mm -hmm. or frustration. Um, Right. All of those states of mind also produce those excitatory inputs. So Mm -hmm. when I have a patient that has had previous back surgery and they have chronic back pain to begin with, now they have a long commute and they get stressed out during their commute and they start to have road rage and their whole mindset starts to get into that center, they've just increased their excitatory input into the pain center. So by the time they get home or by the time Uh, they get to work, 
their pain is much worse uh, and uh, uh, makes them miserable. So this is how stress can affect people's pain. Yeah, stress, um, you know, as far as stress activating the pain centers of the brain, mm-hmm. yes. It just, it, it increases it. Yeah. It increases their experience of pain because it's it's overstimulating basically that part of their brain. Right. Okay. And when you, we have the ability to do uh, imaging studies now that look at certain areas of the brain and we look at those centers when certain activities are taking place and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the same centers of the brain that are lighting up whether the person is experiencing a sense of anger or whether they just smash their their thumb for example so mm. you know that goes back to what i was saying the brain doesn't know the difference between those two stimuli they're both excitatory stimuli mm-hmm. that end up at the brain and the relay station basically says this is an awful experience mm-hmm. you're supposed to feel this as pain right and and you can uh kind of set yourself up for problems there i'm thinking about some experiences that i had with my daughter who was anticipating doing something that she was sure would cause pain for her. Mm-hmm. And as she was anticipating that, I think that was, you know, I'm trying to understand what you've just explained to us about how you get that brain just stimulated, that, that part of your brain in the pain receptor area. Or I know I didn't say all that right, but that part of your brain, if it's getting overstimulated, is going to create more of an experience of pain for you than would happen otherwise. Correct. And that was true for her. I think, um, uh, I can't even remember what it was. It was like an immunization or something a couple of years ago that she was anticipating this needle prick. And it was far worse for her than it needed to be because of all of that agitation that was going on before it actually occurred the you know probably the conditioning from previous immunizations mm-hmm. um conditioning from uh, possibly siblings saying oh this is going to be an awful experience mm-hmm. and her, her her mom memory, who hates needles her memory of pain all of that yeah um you okay. know that gets into the concept of in anesthesia we talk about something called preemptive analgesia which is should we treat the pain or should we try to block the pain signal before it happens mm-hmm. let me let me give you an example uh, someone's going in for knee replacement surgery we know that's going to be very painful surgery we know it's going to be a very painful rehabilitation for the patient mm-hmm. and there are some studies sh- that show that if you block the nerves before the knee surgery so preemptive analgesia those patients rehabilitation and their p- post-operative pain is much less so so we're getting now into some some treatment options. I think you know what I'm 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 going a number of different directions with this in my mind because I think there's a lot of people who are just dealing with different kinds of pain on a daily basis. And I want to to maybe take two different approaches here. I I would love to have you share what are some of the things people can do if they were to come to your clinic, for example, you know, talk about what some of the options are for handling that kind of chronic pain, but then also on a day-to-day basis, I'm wondering if you have some uh, some recommendations for people as to what they can do personally to manage that pain. And uh, I'm sure you've got ideas both ways. Which which direction would you prefer to go first? Um Oh, I think we'll probably end up talking to both, you know, really in conjunction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because when I when I have a patient in front of me and I'm trying to treat their chronic pain, again, I'm going back to those ex- those excitatory and, and and inhibitory signals, and looking at it from a standpoint of what signals are that patient, what signals are excitatory in that patient, and what signals are inhibitory. And if there is anything that can be done as far as the excitatory signals, uh, for example, nerve blocks or any of the surgical procedures that I do, we can talk about those in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that would reduce the excitatory signal to the pain, the pain center, we're mm-hmm. going to start to get some pain relief. Uh, but I also have to look at the inhibitory signals in that is there, an, is there a way that we can increase those? Um, you know, for example, uh, getting patients into a psychologist that can teach them cognitive behavioral therapy or biofeedback, trying to teach them coping mechanisms or relaxation methods to get them in that mindset away from anger and dep- depression and frustration so that we're increasing the inhibitory signal to the pain center. Some of the medications mm-hmm. that we use in pain management also work on the inhibitory side in that they suppress the central nervous system, both the spinal cord and the brain. And by suppressing the, some of those signals, uh, they, they decrease either the excitatory input that the brain receives or they actually increase the inhibitory output from the brain. Mm-hmm. So there are... At the spinal cord level now, so we leave the brain and we get down to the spinal cord level, there are some reflexes, reflex arcs that take place that when, for example, if you hit your toe with a hammer and that signal is excitatory and hits the spinal cord level, that signal will continue to travel to the brain. But there's a reflex arc at that level at the spinal cord that sends an inhibitory pathway also to the brain. So that oh. so that suddenly the brain gets this stimulus of intense pain, but then it doesn't stay there. It's basically a way of, it's kind of a wake-up call. Okay, you're awake. I'm aware I just hit my toe. Now don't continue to punish me with pain. You know, I'm going to move my toe or I'm going to do something about it. So that's mm-hmm. kind of the whole reflex arc. If you step on a nail, we don't all just sit there and stand on it. We all jump off of it because of those inhibitory inputs. And that's a reflex. That's a spinal cord... Reflex. Level reflex, right? Yeah. Which I, I'm remembering some of this from my uh, from my neurophysiology classes. That it just it automatically takes care of part of it, and then it sends the signal on up to the brain so that you can take any further steps that are necessary. Correct. Amazing, amazing process that happens there. Okay, we're gonna come right back to this after this next break. Stick with us. This is Shay Larson, IdeaOrbit.com, with the World of Ideas Report. Sometimes it is the simplest of ideas that can change the world's largest problems. One of the most basic needs of life is water, yet over one billion people do not have a clean source of water. In fact, 6,000 people die every day due to water-related diseases. Millions of people have to walk to dirty rivers every day for their water. Even more shocking, over 80% of the diseases that plague our world are related to contaminated water. So what would you need to solve this problem? According to Christina Gubik, the main ingredient to fight this problem is children who want to play. That's right. If Christina can find a few children to play, she can provide water to many. Here's how it works. Christina is from Play Pumps International. The Play Pump looks like a merry-go-round. In fact, it is a merry-go-round. While children have fun spinning the large toy, water is being pumped from around 150 feet below to a holding tank. Sounds simple? With as little as one hour of play, the play pump can extract around 1,400 liters of clean, drinkable water even in some of the most arid areas of Africa. Their goal is to have 4,000 play pumps installed throughout Africa by the year 2010, which would provide fresh water to over 10 million people. Well done, Christina Gubik and Play Pumps International for your refreshing idea. This is Shay Larson, IdeaOrbit.com, with the World of Ideas Report. I've got a great idea. Wouldn't you like to know? You probably can't bear it, so I guess I'll have to share it. I thought of it a moment. Thank you for joining me for the Live on Purpose radio podcast. 
It is truly an honor to be a part of your prosperity team. Please visit my website, drpaul.org, to get connected with other tools for you and your family. There you will find links to my weekly e-zine, Empower, Harnessing the Power of the Mind, and to the free Parental Power Teleconference that I host every week with my wife, Vicki. You can also check out upcoming events or pick up powerful information products. Feel free to contact me directly with questions, comments, or to book me for your company or private event. Email me through drpaul at liveonpurposeradio.com. So, Dr. Matthew Peterson, the pain doc. <laughs> I don't know if you've picked up any taglines like that. but I have, from my eight-year-old daughter specifically. <laughs> from your daughter, huh? She uh, introduces me as, this is, um, my daddy is a doctor, and uh, he's a pain doctor. He's really good at pain. So, <laughs> You're really good at pain. That's what she says. She says, I like to give needle shots. Oh, boy. Well, uh, I noticed something earlier when we were talking, and as you were describing how pain works, and I'm thinking about you listeners out there, and hopefully it gave you a few insights into what what pain is and how it works. Some of it may sound a little clinical or a little medical, but I think the short version is the pain is in your brain. That's true. Now, the source of it may originate in your back or in your shoulder or in your ankle or wherever, right? And that's where where the nervous system is picking up these, you talked about excitatory or inhibitory kinds of signals. Correct. And the excitatory ones travel through the spinal cord up to the brain where the pain center in your brain interprets that as pain and provides you with the experience of pain pain, which is both sensory and emotional. Mm-hmm. With that understanding, if, if the pain is in the brain, and actually this is, I've kind of thought about this whole anesthesia thing before. If, if you go in for surgery and the anesthesiologist comes in and hooks you up with whatever to knock you out. In fact, this was kind of funny. My dad, I remember years ago, was going through a procedure. And the anesthesiologist was talking to him about what level of anesthesia he wanted. Because apparently he could have elected to do some kind of a, a localized anesthesia or uh, all the way up through a general anesthesia where they just knock him out. And his response was, well... I don't really want to be here. So as close as you can get to that would be great. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you go under general anesthesia, basically what they're doing, and correct me if I'm wrong because I don't know anything about this. I'm a shrink. What I understand that they're doing is they're turning off the brain. (laughs) That's true. Okay, Essentially, they're turning it off. They're just turning it off. So so the... um, if if the surgeon is is making an incision in your leg and you are out, okay, doing knee surgery or something, okay, you're out cold. The the nerves are still picking up all of the sensation there at the knee level, sending the little excitatory response up through the spinal cord and into the brain where the brain is saying, "Oh, don't bother me, I'm asleep." And so it doesn't provide you with an experience of pain. Um, again, I'm oversimplifying this, but it seems like that helps to to explain what it is that's going on with the pain. You turn off the brain, you don't feel the pain. Yeah, oversimplification, but essentially it's a pretty. Good <laughs> I already definition. admitted that, Doc. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's essentially uh, when you talk about general anesthetics, that's what you're doing is mm-hmm. shutting off the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about all of those other nerves continuing to work, they do. And we see that in, in surgery. Mm-hmm. I can have a patient under general anesthesia and they complete, they can be completely unconscious. Mm-hmm. 
uh, to the point that they're not breathing. You know, we have to take over breathing for them and uh, have them on a ventilator. Mm -hmm. And the moment that surgeon makes his incision, the heart rate speeds up, their blood pressure increases. Mm -hmm. Those reflex arcs at the spinal cord level are still alive and operational and doing well. Mm -hmm. But we wake up from that surgery not having any emotional experience associated with that, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, also comes into the, any, any conditioning, conditioned response. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's no sensory associated with that experience. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think compare that to someone who chose to have a knee operation under a spinal anesthetic mm -hmm. where we can, can completely block the nerve transmission at the spinal cord level so they don't reach mm -hmm. the brain center, we've stopped the excitatory input from the tissue damage of surgery, but mm -hmm. we certainly didn't stop the emotional experience or any of the conditioning the patient brings into the operating room because they can be awake for that surgery. They can hear the surgery going on. They can hear the monitors. They can hear mm -hmm. their heart rate increase. Um, they're still there and able to fear or feel the the emotion of fear, mm -hmm. um, all of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, and then you then they can walk away from that surgical experience with the whole emotional aspect of it, which they, later on they may perceive as pain mm -hmm. if they're coming back now for the other side. If they're coming back in for the yeah. other knee, they I'm might trying. think they might think you know I really don't want to be here for this one. Mm -hmm. I took a clinical hypnosis class as part of my PhD program. And it was interesting as we got into pain and uh, talked about many of the same things that we're talking about here today. How, uh, you know, neurophysiologically, how does this work? What is it? And in a state of hypnosis, you can convince the brain that there either is or is not pain. In fact, I know a lot of dentists, for example, people who have dental phobias or uh, they can't, for for whatever reason, can't use the typical anesthetics that they use. Uh, a lot of times they'll use hypnosis to do the, uh, the anesthesia part of dentistry. I don't know what you think about that or uh, what experience you have with that, but it's amazing to me what the brain can do we're talking about a number of different levels you can turn off uh the pain center of the brain so to speak with the general anesthesia you can block the nerve so that that signal doesn't get to the brain in the first place but then there's all of these other competing signals that are coming in from the person's experience and from the person's expectations and and from their conditioning um I think when you talk about uh, hypnosis, um, it, you know, from that aspect, I start thinking about the inhibitory input and our manipulation of the inhi inhibitory signals that mm -hmm. shut the pain center off. And, mm -hmm. you know, that brings up the whole uh, topic of the placebo effect in pain management. Talk about that a little bit. That's a fascinating effect. What um, What is a placebo effect, first of all, for those who haven't heard about it? Well, the placebo effect is essentially... Uh, the patient wants to have an experience and they believe that if they have a particular procedure or a particular medication, they will, ha they will have that experience mm -hmm. based on the expectations that they have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I see that in my, my own practice, you know, in pain medicine, I can tell you that the placebo response is alive and well in pain medicine. And about 20% of the population, uh, on my estimate, is uh, what I would call placebo responders. Uh, you know, for example, if I do a particular nerve block with the expectation that the patient is going to get an anesthetic response. Now, a nerve block is when you typically inject some kind of a chemical or a medication into the system that... that uh, deadens that nerve. Correct. Is that right? It's, it's like when I go to the dentist and I get that shot of Novocaine or whatever it is. That would be local anesthetic. and That's a nerve block. That's a type of nerve block though, right? Yes. Okay. Um, in the placebo response, if I was to inject normal saline, which really doesn't have any properties as far as any 
uh, nerve-blocking agent, such as a local anesthetic. In other words, chemically speaking, it shouldn't have any effect. Correct. Okay. Um, there are patients that get off the table, and in their mind, they're convinced that they've had a particular procedure, and with the expectation that they're going to have the pain relief, they get off the operating operating room table, and they're able to walk, they're able to do everything, and when you ask them what their pain is, they'll say, I don't have any. That took care of it. And you know, other than the placebo response, I don't have any good reason or anatomical or physiological reason to say, well, there's no reason why you should have pain relief right now. Other than mm-hmm. the placebo response, which is their manipulation of their inhibitory pathways based on their expectation. So there's a lot of things that can enact this inhibitory response. Yeah. The placebo effect is just one example, but I'm thinking about times in my own experience where I've received an injury and didn't notice because I was so busy or distracted or whatever with something else. And then later on, after that thing passed, oh, I realize now that uh, my toe is bleeding or my finger is bleeding, you know, and then I feel the pain when my attention is drawn to it. Am I just weird or is this something that (laughs) you can help us to understand? Well, I think, you know, I think it goes back to in in the example that you had, it's the conditioning from previous painful stimuli that you've had. Mm-hmm. that uh, affected your particular response. But there are patients that I have that they had a back injury. It was a work-related injury, for example. And it was a, a bad injury or it was a motor vehicle accident, and they've had a severe injury. And maybe they've had surgery to to assist in rehabilitation from that injury. And the body has done all that it can do to heal from that injury, but yet the patient continues to live in pain. And sometimes I will see these uh, big construction workers or um, guys that work in the timber industry, and after they have rehabilitated from all of this pain, they treat themselves almost like a glass tower. They're afraid to bend over. They're Mm -hmm. afraid to really do anything. And when you really get down to the element that... uh, what's impacting their life, it's the fear that the pain will come back. Mm. And, and, you know, so it's very difficult for some of these patients to go back to work. And they have to overcome that whole psychological aspect of the fear response with, you know, if I bend over, this is going to happen again. And, you know, through, that's where we get into cognitive behavioral therapy and physical therapy, you know, working with that patient, actually conditioning them, teaching them again that you, know, you can bend over. This isn't Your pain is not automa- automatically going to come back. You're not going to re-injure yourself. And it's mm-hmm. retraining and reconditioning the mind, the mind from that standpoint. So after this last break, I think we're going to get into some of the practical things that people might be able to do if they're experiencing pain in their life now. Raising kids is one of the most challenging and rewarding experiences we can have in life. Your children didn't come with an owner's manual, so it's up to you to learn whatever will assist you in your role as a mom or a dad. Join me and my husband, Dr. Paul, for a free weekly discussion about all of the hot topics in parenting. Listen to what others are saying about these calls. By applying the things I've learned to the parental power calls, I'm finally becoming the mom I always thought I would be. I really like to use parental power as kind of like a reference book. So as I have concerns with my parenting, I like to be able to look up on the blog and then listen to whatever podcast seems closely related. So I like the variety of of topics, the variety of age groups that are addressed. I'm on the parental power calls as often as I possibly can because I know I'm going to come away with something I can apply to being a parent that very day. Let us join your parenting team through parental power. Just send an email to drpaul at liveonpurposeradio.com to register for the live calls. Or just check us out first through the link at drpaul.org. 
All of the previous calls are posted on our blog site, where you can also add your own input. Let's team up to start parenting on purpose. If the pile of books you want to read is growing faster than the pile you have read, then Abundant Reading Systems can help you. After taking Abundant Reading Systems course, I dramatically increased my ability to expand my knowledge in a much more efficient way. My fastest test today was in the 7,000 words per minute. I highly recommend this program from what I've seen it do for other people who've been through the entire program and from what I've seen in myself today. I've teamed up with Abundant Reading Systems to offer a single-day intensive speed reading workshop that will at least double your reading speed, guaranteed. This belief started to grow inside of me that I thought, oh, I can really do this. I can read you know, as fast as I let myself read and uh, ended up doubling my time, my speed reading time, which was really good. This is David Hinton, founder of Abundant Reading Systems. I want to personally invite you to join us for our next event. Visit AbundantReadingSystems.com now. Abundant Reading Systems, reading at the speed of imagination. We're going to wrap this thing up in this segment. And the thing that is the most obvious, I think, to me right now after all of this discussion, pain has a purpose. Pain has a purpose. Pain does have a purpose. It, it Well, it calls your attention to something that, whatever the source of the pain is. Now, we don't always know what the source of the pain is. Sometimes it's obvious if you smash your finger with a hammer, you pretty much know what the source of the pain is. And and tissue damage is something that you have to pay attention to because it could be potentially life-threatening. Or it can threaten your quality of life. Okay, so you want to pay attention to that. If there's some kind of an injury or some kind of tissue damage or some kind of disease process that's causing this pain, the purpose for the pain is for you to notice that so that you can take care of it if there's right. something you can do. So what if if we get down to the practical side of things, if you understand that pain has a purpose and you can find the source of the pain, do that. Right. That's why people go to the doctor, right? That's why they're going. Doc, I got this pain in my back. Oh, well, let's check it out. Let's see what we can find out about that. Now, there's a lot of folks who go through that process and do not find, to their satisfaction or the doctor's satisfaction, the source of this pain. And maybe it's an old injury, but the injury is healed now, and they still have this chronic pain. Or you shared during the break the example of an automobile accident. Um Talk about that for just a minute in terms of what, where do we go once we've satisfied ourselves that there's not some kind of an active injury or some kind of ongoing tissue damage that's causing this pain? What's next? What do we look at? Well, I think what initially what you're talking about there is when do people cross over from acute pain to chronic pain? And acute pain okay. can really be thought of as uh, beneficial pain, you know, beneficial in that it's a it's a stimuli we're going to re- respond to to avoid further harm or tissue damage, right? And or to motivate you to take care of whatever damage just occurred, right? Okay. And then there is chronic pain, where you know the tissue is healed, or the expectation is that the tissue is healed, or you, or the patient should have been rehabilitated from a particular injury. Mm-hmm. And they should be able to go back to work, or they, or they um, should have healed from that motor vehicle accident. But they they're not. They continue to have this painful experience associated with that event. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, sometimes that is, uh, again, from continued tissue damage, whether it's scar tissue from the injury or scar tissue associated with a surgical procedure. But there's also also uh, the whole emotional aspect or the emotional damage done at that incident. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, take the example of the motor vehicle accident where this patient really may have been the victim in this uh, this aspect. They were hit by a drunk driver. They were they were innocent. They didn't do anything wrong, but they're paying mm-hmm. the cost of someone else's negligence. And you know, it may come down to them accepting the fact that they were the victim before they mm-hmm. really start to truly, truly have any resolution of their pain symptoms. I've found, and this gets more into my area than yours probably, that sometimes people will not give themselves permission to to let go of the pain. And and that might be a good example that some there's some reason, and it may not even be a conscious reason. It might be something that's subconscious or something that that's kind of embedded in that person's belief system, that this pain has a job to do for them, and until that job's done, they're not going to let go of the pain. Correct. So, it could, you know, what if they're involved in a lawsuit related to this car accident? And as long as that's still pending, somewhere in their psyche is a little, a little trigger that's saying, hey, don't let go of the pain yet. <laughs> right. Well, I think you know, you're now getting into what I call uh, secondary gain motivators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're entitled to some, some type of financial arrangement in our mm-hmm. legal system. Mm-hmm. And if they're better, if they're pain-free, that settlement's going to be less. Mm-hmm. They're not as impacted. And there are times where I have patients... When they come in, they are so wrapped up in all of the legal issues associated with their injury that that is the majority of the visit that they come in with, even though they have pain symptoms. And sometimes I will tell them, you really need to get these legal issues resolved. You need to get this settled from a legal standpoint, and then you can come back and see me as a a pain patient. Because psychologically, Mm -hmm. they're not ready for pain therapy at that point. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to make progress mm-hmm. from a pain therapy standpoint. And I want to make a clarification here, too. This does not mean that they want the pain. No, they don't. Because pain is always unpleasant. Right. It's uh, that by definition. Okay. It's not that they want it, but at some subconscious level, there is a compelling reason for their mind to hang on to it. Right. Well, I think, you know, going back to our, our model of, the brain is basically a relay station. They had some tissue damage. They've got some scar tissue. All of that is real. They were the victim. They've got all of this excitatory input. But all of the other psychological and emotional aspect mm-hmm. is also excitatory, and they're not putting themselves That's in right. a mindset of mm-hmm. inhibitory input. If they mm-hmm. would, if they progress and they and they settle that lawsuit, it's settled. And they've and they've come to an acceptance of I was mm. the, I was the victim, and it and they've come to some resolution in that they start to activate some of those inhibitory pathways. Acceptance is a powerful psychological concept, and I've I've worked with a number of patients who have been through you know five six doctors trying to address this pain. Finally, they're referred to me as a psychologist because. They can't find any medical or physical reason why this pain is being experienced. And so, and and some people are offended by that. <laughs> you know, oh, now i got to go see a shrink because it's all in my head. Well, I think we already established that the pain is in your brain. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> so whether, and, and again, this does not mean that you are making it up. It doesn't mean that you intend to have pain. It just means that for whatever reason, your mind has has glommed onto this for whatever reasons. And if you can't find a physiological or a physical reason why the pain is there, it's in your best interest to start looking at where you experience the pain, and that's in the brain, in the mind. 
And psychologically, there's a lot you can do. Well, let's just, I I had a a client who came to see me not too long ago who's experiencing some chronic emotional pain. And this isn't from any injury or anything. It's from years of depression. And the pain of depression is very real, too. It's harder to identify the source. You can't say, well, it's in my shoulder or it's in my knee. It's just this kind of sense of pain, this this emotion, it's, it's primarily emotional. And I asked her, I said, what if this pain is permanent? And she looked at me like, oh, don't say that. You know, because she's insisting that she find a way to get it. <laughs> well, what if it's permanent? What if there's nothing we can do about it? What are you going to do? And it, it triggered some thinking for her about, uh, okay. Well, if it's permanent, I'm going to have to deal with it. Okay, this is the brain's way of kicking in some of those natural inhibitory responses. Right. If you will accept it and you stop pushing against it or stop resisting it, sometimes that's one of the steps that you can take toward actually managing that pain in your own life or finding some other response to it or living in spite of it. And so I want to combine that with what you said earlier, that there's a lot of options. There's a lot of things that can be done through the technologies and the medical uh, knowledge that we have. Well, I say we, I mean you, (laughs) right? Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at pain medicine as a specialty, you know, especially from a standpoint of the specialty that I perform, which is interventional pain, Mm -hmm. the therapies are... uh, changing significantly whether due to technology such as fiber optic cameras or the improvement of computers or the improvement of our ability to image the body mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. that's through MRIs the image quality you know, we can start to see some of the anatomical change associated mm-hmm. with some of these injuries which were hard to recognize before mm-hmm. um, whether that's tendon tears or muscle tears or um, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the, the basis of the injury is. And then the ability to do something with that from a microinvasive standpoint. You know, most of my therapies involve some type of needle. Mm-hmm. And these needles are uh, very fine. Uh, some of them no bigger than almost the diameter of uh, a piece of hair. Oh. And, you know, with uh, fluoroscopic imaging, I can guide that needle into a specific structure, mm-hmm. you know, well within different cavities of the body. Mm-hmm. And either do diagnostic blocks or therapeutic blocks of different organs or different nerves. Mm-hmm. You know, technology we couldn't do in years. It's past. just a lot better than it used to be, isn't it? Yep. So there are some things that you may not even be aware of. I want to encourage people to apply a principle here, and that that principle has to do with knowledge is power. And then ask yourself: Do I have more knowledge, or do other people have more knowledge? And the answer to that, when you compare your own knowledge to the collective knowledge of other people, other people always have more. <laughs> and especially if you can identify someone who, who is a specialist in that particular area, who has some unique training skills, expertise in that area. And this, as far as pain is concerned, uh, Dr. Peterson, you are a specialist in that area. When we were talking during the break. You don't know as much about cognitive behavioral therapy Correct. Well, that's something I know a lot about, but I don't know how to guide that little needle into some <laughs> structure right. in the body. Use the knowledge that's out there and get whatever consultation you need. Now, there's some, some other resources for people. I understand you have a website. I do. Is that right? Is that uh, How do people get to that website? It's um, www.pinnaclepaincenter.com. PinnaclePainCenter.com. That's all one word in a web address, right? Yep. Um, I wanted to mention that here at the end of the program because I want people to know where they can go to get contact with you, for one thing, but also to to get further information. And you're going to be putting out some additional informational material as you go. Is that right? Correct. Dr. Peterson, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. What a pain. (laughs) (laughs) Go out there and live on purpose, everybody. 